Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? Great. I want to make one final plug for preacher training camp, my favorite, one of my favorite weeks of the year here at Oldham Lane. So if you are a young Christian man ages 14 through 18, sign up by May the 1st. Actually, we'll say May 2nd because that's next Sunday. Sign up by then. We'd love to have you. We have some spaces still open and uh, just see me and let me know that you're, that you're willing to come and that you want to be a part of it. Fun week. I know you'll enjoy it as we learn how to preach, but also have a lot of fun doing so. So there was this architect who was commissioned to do a multi-million dollar addition to an already huge building that was running out of space. This was a multi-million dollar project with a, a huge, huge budget, and he was commissioned to do this addition, and so he came up with very detailed plans that were 200 pages long. And he got together periodically with some colleagues to talk about the project. And at one point during the project, he's sitting down with some of his colleagues and one of them asked, so how's the project going? And he said, well, let me tell you what I saw today. He said, I went to the site and he said, I looked at one of the walls. I turned to the blueprints and sure enough, they were completely off. The wall was not in the right place, wasn't the right texture, wasn't the right thickness. And one of the colleagues said, what did you do? And he said, I told him to tear it down and start over. Knowing the ramifications of that, he said, wow, are they going to do it? He said, they got to do it. They messed up. If they had followed the architect's blueprints, they wouldn't be in this mess. That's all of us, isn't it? We all find ourselves in a mess because we didn't follow the divine architect's blueprints. And I wonder if God looks at his church sometimes and says, yeah, you wouldn't be in this mess if you'd followed my blueprints. This morning, we begin a new series entitled, What Are We Doing Here? And the goal of these lessons is to help our current members, our new members, and our prospective members to understand what exactly it is that we're striving for at Oldham Lane. I have people ask me in the community, what are y'all doing there? I mean, I drive by, I see the parking lot full. I know you have you know, a new building. I mean, what are y'all doing there? Well, here's what I hope we're doing. We're growing, we're going, we're teaching, we're serving, and we're loving. That's what we're doing. At least that's what I hope we're doing. But there's two follow-up questions to the question of what are we doing here? We can't just leave it at that. We can't just leave it at what are you doing here because what we're doing as the Lord's church should always go back to our purpose. And the two questions related to our purpose is why and how. Why are we growing? How are we going? Why teach and serve? How do we love deeper? There are plenty of big churches that maybe not be, may not be teaching the right things. I mean, it doesn't matter how big your church is if the devil runs it, right? There are many small churches that are doing great things for the Lord, serving and helping and loving. They are mega churches, even though they are small in stature. What is our motivation? What is the reason for what we do? If we're teaching, then what's the curriculum motivating it? How do we love deeper? What is it that's pushing us to be better in every single way? What's the message accompanying the mission? So the what must have the right why and the proper how. And I feel like I just spent way too long explaining that, but hopefully you get the idea. You know, growing up, I compartmentalized Scripture. 
That is how I read the Bible. The Bible came to me in small, bite-sized chunks. So I never read the entirety of the Bible. I never read the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. It was presented to me in small portions. And so I grew up believing the Bible was just kind of random pieces of Scripture, piecemealed together, maybe some stories thrown in. Not only did I compartmentalize Scripture, I missed out on the big picture. Not realizing that the Bible is one grand narrative. And not only is it one grand narrative, we as Christians and the church have a story that fits within that bigger story. And the story that Scripture tells is a story of redemption. You've heard me say it over and over again. The Bible starts in a garden, it ends in a garden, and everything sandwiched in between is a story about God buying his people back. That is the primary story that God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, this nation was to be a light to all the other nations, but sadly it failed in that endeavor. But God never gave up on his people, and he never gave up on his plan. Enter Jesus and the gospel, and the gospel in short form is the story of Israel finding its completion or resolution in the story of Jesus. This is reiterated over and over again in Scripture, especially in the Gospels. We see that all the Gospels had the same emphasis, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the Gospels are called the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whoever, because they declare the story of Jesus according to the apostolic script, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they do it, and I quote, according to the Scriptures. That's another theme within the theme. Paul made this claim as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is definitely a gospel chapter. He talks about how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus all happened according to the scriptures or according to the apostolic script. What scriptures is he talking about? Well, the only scriptures he had at the time were the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew scriptures that Paul claimed pointed to the once and for all atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So Paul isn't referring to some randomized, compartmentalized pieces of Scripture. He's talking about the overall story, the narrative that starts in the Old Testament and points forward to a Messiah coming to reign supreme. The Gospels do the exact same thing. They lay out the story of Jesus according to the Scriptures, and they all point back to how the story in the Old Testament is the same story we see in the New Testament. We don't shift gears when we come to the New Testament. It's all pointing to the fulfillment of the story found in Jesus Christ. He is the completion of this story. Now, if you will excuse me, I'm going to be a nerd for a moment, and I'm going I'm to point out some things that I find especially interesting when it comes to Scripture. When we look at this story within a story motif, we look at John's Gospel, for instance. John is particularly interested in connecting the old with the new. And we see this over and over again in his gospel, especially when it comes to the feasts. He connects the Old Testament feasts with the person who is Jesus Christ. So in chapter 2, it's the temple. In chapter 5, it's the Sabbath. In chapter 6, it's the Passover. In chapter 7 through 10, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. In chapter 10, it's also the Feast of Dedication. But in John chapter 8, remember when he makes that statement, I am the light of the world? What is going on around the context of that statement? Well, he is teaching in the temple treasury, which would have been a busy place, certainly a place to gather an audience. 
And as a rabbi, he is about to sit down and teach. Now, like we talked about before, when a rabbi sat down to teach, it meant that he was about to give you the core or the essence of his teaching. Now, what was going on at this time was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And on the first night of the first day of this feast, there was a ceremony known as the Illumination of the Temple, where four big candelabra were set up in the middle of the court of women, and they were lit. And it said that the the flame from this candelabra was so great that it illuminated every nook and cranny and crevice of the temple. And it's within this context that Jesus says... I am the light of the world, meaning that this candelabra, these candelabra, they may light the temple, they may give off a a glow, but I'm going to light up the world. I'm going to provide you light, not just in the meantime, but for all eternity. See, the the lights on the candelabra, they, they would go out, they would flicker and they would fade, but Jesus says, I am the light for you for all eternity. You take all of that and combine it with the fact that the ancient rabbis taught that Messiah actually equaled light. You guys still seem engaged. Thank you for that. I just, I think it's powerful. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. I mean, read through the gospel sometime. Read through the gospel of John. See it for yourself. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Pause and ponder the connection as you read through a passage or a chapter. It's a story-to-story approach and one that we need to be implementing in our daily Bible study because we're a part of this story. Yes, the story is about Israel. It's about the gospel. It's about rescue. It's about Jesus and God first and foremost, but it's also a story about us. When you became a Christian, you became a part of this story. For Jesus to be our anointed priest and king, he couldn't just be God. He had to be human. And as you know, humans also are directly connected to mortality. We're going to die, at least physically, right? We're all terminal. We're all born with an expiration date. And Jesus, being flesh and blood, took on mortality as well. So the fact that Jesus died and was buried emphasizes the fact that he shared in our mortality. The people of Israel referred to death as being gathered to their people or being gathered to their fathers. For Israel, it was necessary for the Messiah to be gathered to his people in every way because the Messiah came not only to save the living, but also the dead, right? For those who came before and that blood flows backwards. So the burial of Jesus was a way for him to identify with us. However, it's a way for us to identify with him as well. How do we identify with Jesus' mortality? How do we identify with his death and burial and resurrection? Through baptism, right? So it's through baptism that we identify with him. He also identifies with us. We are released from the slavery of sin, which means that we also identify with the nation of Israel. Being buried with Christ in baptism means that the grave, the tomb, the dirt has no power over us. That the grave is not our permanent destination. Death has no sway over us because it's already been defeated. But as awesome as all that is, burial can't be the end of the story, right? Jesus identifying with our burial and us identifying with his burial means very little if there's not a next step. And through the prophets, God promised that he would resurrect or raise up the nation Israel. That's Ezekiel chapter 37. And while there is a bit of metaphor or symbolism there, 
You cannot convince me that guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Many first century Jews believed that on the last day, God would raise his people Israel from the dead. And Jesus claimed to be the embodiment of Israel. He lived his whole life as a faithful Israelite and a faithful representative of Israel. He lived his whole life for his whole people, and he died on behalf of his whole people. So, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he started with the most faithful, the one who offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. Paul says the first fruits of the resurrection. And our baptism, our baptism is foreshadowing to what is to come. We've been raised up, and we will be raised up on that last day. We, we win because we're resurrected. My point is there is a rhythm to Scripture, which is obvious, right? I mean, everything has a rhythm. The earth has a rhythm. Rhythm. universe has a rhythm. You have a rhythm. Your body has a rhythm. Your heartbeat has a rhythm. Your lungs have a rhythm. There's a rhythm to everything, and the Bible is no different. Scripture has a rhythm. All too often, people read their story into the Bible instead of discovering how they fit into God's great narrative. We want to read our individual story in light of the big story when it should be the other way around. If we want to stay in rhythm and in harmony with God, then we must see ourselves both in the big story and in the smaller narratives. We are writing a story here at Oldham Lane. It's a story that began in the mid-90s one that continues on to today and will continue from this day forward. The authors have changed. This is a different chapter, but the story is still being written and hopefully will continue to be written for many generations to enjoy. And while it's an awesome opportunity, it's also a grave responsibility. We must make certain that we're following the blueprints and listening to the divine architect. Not long ago, there was an article on the internet that caught my attention until I realized it was the Babylon Bee, which is satire. But sometimes the line between satire and truth can get pretty blurred, right? The name of this article was, Church Growth Expert Cringes at Jesus' Sermons in the Gospel. In the article, it said, Stating he was shocked at the Lord's ignorant approach to attractional church growth, self-described church growth expert Mark A. Sloniker was reportedly cringing the entire time he read through several of Christ's popular sermons in the Gospels. The article continues, He had such a good thing going with the feeding of the 5,000. Why do you have to blow it? Why not just seal the deal with an extreme men's ministry event or a big Easter giveaway? If only the Savior were as enlightened about church growth as we are, he could have had an honest-to-goodness megachurch, Sloniker lamented. Sometimes art imitates reality. We are a growing church, and that's exciting. However, we can't get so obsessed with quantity that we sacrifice quality. You know, it's interesting. When I see a crowd, I get excited. Last week, we had 755 people here. This week, another big crowd. When I see a crowd, I get excited. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical. Now, large crowds were going along with him. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were going along with him. If you had large crowds following you, what would you do? You had a golden opportunity to speak to the masses. What would you say? Here's what Jesus said. Unless you love me more than your family and even yourself, then you can't be a true follower. If you don't carry your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. 
None of you can be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. When we see crowds, we want to keep them. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got suspicious. And here our Lord is presented with a golden opportunity to speak to the masses, and you would think that he would give a message that is motivational, encouraging, one that's non-confrontational, but he doesn't. He says, I know you love your wife, and I know she's great, but she can't come before me. I know your kids are so smart, and they deserve to be gifted and talented, and they're so athletic and all that, but they can't come before me. I know you like your house. I know you like your car. I know you like your, your income, but you better be willing to give it all away if need be to follow me. I know you love your life, but are you willing to die? Because to be a disciple in the first century didn't mean just being a pretty good person. It meant being willing to die. You see, Jesus wasn't consumed with how many. He was consumed with how far. How far are you willing to go? Because Jesus only wants finishers. You know, you ask the average person their take on church growth, and you'll probably get some variation of the three Bs. You know what the three Bs are? Bodies, bucks, and buildings. You know, larger churches have a large membership, they have bigger buildings, bigger budgets, more people, more money, more structures, but this is society's measurement, not God's. Nowhere in Scripture do you find God evaluating the health of a congregation by how big it is, and we don't do that in other things. We don't determine that a family is healthier because they're bigger. We don't say that a family of 10 is healthier than a family of three. We don't determine the health of an individual by how big he is or how big she is. In fact, it's probably the other way around, right? My point being that we assume certain things when it comes to church attendance, membership. If a church is only healthy, if it's 1,000 members or more, then 99% of all the churches in the world are sick. Hopefully you see the point. Church is not about the number of bodies in the pews. It's about the number of souls in the kingdom, which means... That church growth happens, not when numbers increase, but when the faith of a Christian increases. In fact, that is the number one metric for church growth, maturity. How do I know this? Because I read it in the best book ever written for church growth, the Bible. Listen to what Paul says. We proclaim him admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which works mightily within me. Paul's goal in ministry was for those he was laboring with and for to be complete in Christ. Complete means mature. Paul says, that's what I strive for. That's what I'm laboring for. I want you to be mature. For Paul, the measure of success in ministry was the maturity, the growth of God's people. You look at Hebrews chapter 5. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become poor listeners. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. The Hebrew writer says, some of y'all need to go back to spiritual kindergarten. You need to relearn your ABCs. He calls them out for being dull of hearing, which really literally means mule-headed. They were babies. And what good is a baby? 
Well, we love babies, don't we? They're worth a lot to us. They're worth everything to us. But we know going in that a baby can't do anything for itself. We know that. We're going to have to change them. We're going to have to feed them. We're going to have to completely take care of them. Our world stops when they have a need. Everything circles around the baby because they are not self-sufficient. But you know what? We understand that going in, so it's okay. We know that. What's frustrating is when a grown adult acts like a baby. We don't have time to be messing with you. We don't have time to be doing these fundamental foundational things when you should be taking care of these yourself. These Christians refused to grow up, which showed that they weren't serious about their discipleship. And notice the proof of maturity that the Hebrew writer points to. Have their senses trained to distinguish good and evil. In other words, the proof of their maturity is that they could become teachers. Look, folks. Saints beget saints. Almost all of you, if not all of you here, became a Christian because of the efforts of another Christian. Saints beget saints. Church growth is an inside-out process. You grow inwardly so that you can grow outwardly. You grow you so that you can grow them. Church growth is about training the people of God, equipping the saints to become what God wants them to be so that they can do out, go out and do what God expects them to do. After all, converted sinners make the best preachers, right? This is our responsibility as saints to beget saints. There's a lot of churches out there that have come up with some newfangled evangelism program, and I don't want to diminish those, but oftentimes they fall short. Oftentimes, you get great results in the beginning and very little retention. I don't think we need another church-wide evangelism program. I think if the church is going to be more evangelistic, it's going to start with you personally. If we're going to be a growing church, it's going to be every one of you taking full responsibility for your number one purpose, which is to glorify God, going out and making disciples. The church is to be the agency by which the story of salvation is to be told, which means that all of us must group together. We must find that one, because all of you have one, we must find that one that we need to reach. Really, all of you have more than one, but we need to go to them. We are only going to grow as you grow. Discipleship and making and growing disciples begins with you, equipping the saints to go out and make more saints. You see this in the book of Acts. It's one of those stories within the story. It has characters. It has a rhythm. It has a plot. It has movement. It has progression. Luke wants us to see the rhythm. See the rhythm of focusing on Jesus within the Christian community and then shifting that focus to the outside world. And each movement of the rhythm represents an increase. Have you noticed this? From 120 to over 3,000 to over 5,000. There's a growth element to this rhythm as the gospel advances and expands with the work of the Holy Spirit, the faithful preaching of the apostles as well, and the fellowship of believers. And here's something else that this rhythm shows us, something vitally important for all of us, and that is we don't grow the church. We don't grow the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, towards the end, Peter added to their number day by day those that were being saved. Is that what it says? No. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those that were being saved. You see, we plant, we water, we feed, 
we nourish. But there's a metabolic thing going on here that's out of our control that we have nothing to do with. We sow, he grows. We irrigate, he regenerates. There was a mother who was taking her little daughter to preschool one morning. The mother was also a doctor, and she had left her stethoscope in the passenger seat. And she looked over and noticed her little girl playing with the stethoscope. And these visions popped into her mind of her sweet, adorable, gifted little daughter becoming a doctor like her one day. She thought to herself, could it be that my daughter would follow in my footsteps and be a doctor? And about that time, the little girl took the end of the stethoscope and held it up to her mouth and said, welcome to McDonald's, can I take your order? (laughs) I want to ask you this morning, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? If you're not striving for maturity right now, then please start, because you're not helping this congregation at all. You're not engaged in the mission of this congregation. If you're not making personal growth a priority, then you just become a pew sitter, a pew potato as we call it. You were not saved to sit and soak and sour. You were saved to serve. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, may we all understand our responsibility to grow and mature. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be a family, to be a part of this wonderful family. And God, help us to seek greater maturity, to raise the bar spiritually, to be everything you would have us to be so this church can be everything that you would have it to be, and so that we can make a difference in our community as you would have us to. God, we love you. May we, like Jesus, go out as we have been sent. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Luke's going to lead us in, there you are. Luke's going to lead us in a song if we can help you this morning anyway. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.